Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about deep vein thrombosis and venous thromboembolism. And you can find written notes on this topic at zerotofinals.com or in the hematology section of the second edition of the Zero to Finals Medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Venous thromboembolism or VTE is a common and potentially fatal condition. It involves a blood clot or thrombus developing in the circulation, usually secondary to blood stagnation or hypercoagulable states. When a thrombus develops in a deep vein, it's called a deep vein thrombosis or DVT. Once a thrombus has developed, it can travel or embolize from the deep veins through the right side of the heart and into the lungs where it becomes lodged in the pulmonary arteries. This blocks blood flow to areas of the lungs distal to the blood clot and is called a pulmonary embolism, or PE. If a patient has a septal defect in their heart, for example an atrial septal defect that is a hole between the left and right hand side of the heart, the thrombus can pass through to the left side of the heart and into the systemic circulation. If it travels to the brain, it can cause a large stroke. Let's go through the risk factors. The risk factors for venous thromboembolism are immobility, recent surgery, long-haul travel, for example, aeroplane trips to the other side of the world, pregnancy, hormone therapy with estrogen, for example, the combined contraceptive pill or hormone replacement therapy, malignancy or cancer, polycythemia, systemic lupus erythematosus, and thrombophilia. A tom tip, in your exams, when a patient presents with possible features of a deep vein thrombosis or a pulmonary embolism, ask about risk factors such as periods of immobility, surgery, and long-haul flights, and this will score you extra points. Let's talk about thrombophilias. Thrombophilias are conditions that predispose patients to developing blood clots. There are a large number of these, including antiphospholipid syndrome, factor V Leiden, antithrombin deficiency, protein C or protein S deficiency, hyperhomocystinemia, prothrombin gene variant, and activated protein C resistance. A tom tip for you, the cause of venous thromboembolism to remember is antiphospholipid syndrome, which is associated with recurrent miscarriage and diagnosed with a blood test for antiphospholipid antibodies. Let's talk about venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. Every patient admitted to hospital is assessed for their risk of venous thromboembolism. Patients at increased risk receive prophylaxis unless it's contraindicated. Prophylaxis usually involves low molecular weight heparin, such as anoxaparin. Contraindications include active bleeding or existing anticoagulation with warfarin or a DOAC. Antiembolic compression stockings are also used to reduce the risk of deep vein thrombosis. Peripheral arterial disease is the main contraindication for compression stockings. Let's move on to the presentation of deep vein thrombosis. 
DVTs are almost always unilateral. If the symptoms are bilateral, it's probably due to an alternative diagnosis, such as chronic venous insufficiency or heart failure. DVTs can present with calf or leg swelling, dilated superficial veins, tenderness to the calf, particularly over the site of the deep veins, edema or swelling, and colour changes to the leg. The calf circumference is measured 10 cm below the tibial tuberosity. More than a 3 cm difference between the legs is significant. Consider a pulmonary embolism, for example asking about shortness of breath and chest pain in patients who have features of a deep vein thrombosis. Next let's talk about the Wells score. The Wells score predicts the risk of a patient presenting with symptoms having a deep vein thrombosis or a pulmonary embolism. The scoring system includes risk factors, for example recent surgery, and clinical findings, for example unilateral calf swelling more than 3cm greater than the other leg. Next let's talk about making the diagnosis. The Wells score is used when considering a diagnosis of a deep vein thrombosis. The outcome decides the next steps. If the Wells score determines that a deep vein thrombosis is likely, the next step is to perform a leg vein ultrasound scan. If the Wells score says that a DVT is unlikely, the next step is to perform a D-dimer test. And if this is positive, then go on to perform a leg vein ultrasound. D-dimer is a blood test for venous thromboembolism. It's sensitive at around 95% sensitivity, but not specific. It helps to exclude venous thromboembolism where there's a low suspicion. It's almost always raised if there is a DVT or a PE. However, there are many other conditions that can cause a raised D-dimer, for example pneumonia, malignancy or cancer, heart failure, surgery and pregnancy. Ultrasound of the leg is required to diagnose a deep vein thrombosis. The NICE guidelines recommend repeating a negative ultrasound scan after 6-8 to eight days if the patient has a positive D-dimer and the Wells score suggests a DVT is likely. CT pulmonary angiogram, or CTPA, is the usual first-line imaging investigation for a pulmonary embolism. Let's talk about the initial management. In most cases, the NICE guidelines from 2020 recommend treatment dose apixaban or rivaroxaban as the initial anticoagulant. Low molecular weight heparin is the main alternative. Anticoagulation should be started immediately in patients where a DVT or PE is suspected and there's going to be a delay in getting the scan to confirm the diagnosis. The NICE guidelines from 2020 recommend considering catheter-directed thrombolysis in patients with a symptomatic iliofemoral DVT and symptoms lasting less than 14 days. This involves a catheter inserted under x-ray guidance through the venous system to apply thrombolysis directly into the clot. Next let's talk about long-term anticoagulation. 
The options for long-term anticoagulation in venous thromboembolism are a DOAC, warfarin, or low-molecular weight heparin. Direct-acting oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, are oral anticoagulants that do not require monitoring. Options are apixaban, rivaroxaban, edoxaban, and dabigatran. DOACs are suitable for most patients. Exceptions include severe renal impairment, for example, creatinine clearance of less than 15 milliliters per minute, patients with antiphospholipid syndrome, and patients who are pregnant. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. The target INR for warfarin is between 2 and 3 when treating DVTs and PEs. It's first line in patients with antiphospholipid syndrome who require initial concurrent treatment with low molecular weight heparin. Low molecular weight heparin is the first line anticoagulant in pregnancy. Anticoagulation is continued for three months if there's a reversible cause and then it's reviewed, three to six months in active cancer and then it's reviewed, or long-term for unprovoked venous thromboembolism, recurrent venous thromboembolism, or where there's an irreversible underlying cause, for example, thrombophilia. Let's talk about inferior vena cava filters. Inferior vena cava filters are devices that are inserted into the inferior vena cava, and they're designed to filter the blood and catch any blood clots that are travelling from the venous system towards the heart and the lungs. They act as a sieve, allowing the blood to flow through while stopping and collecting larger blood clots. They're used in patients who are unsuitable for anticoagulation or where a pulmonary embolism has occurred whilst already being on anticoagulation. Next, let's talk about investigating an unprovoked deep vein thrombosis. When patients have their first episode of venous thromboembolism without a clear cause, the NICE guidelines from 2020 recommend reviewing the medical history, baseline blood results and physical examination for evidence of cancer. In patients with an unprovoked DVT or PE, that are not going to continue anticoagulation beyond 3-6 to six months, the NICE guidelines recommend considering testing for antiphospholipid syndrome by checking for antiphospholipid antibodies and hereditary thrombophilias only if they have a first-degree relative also affected by a DVT or PE. Finally, let's talk about Bud-Chiari syndrome. Bud-Chiari syndrome involves obstruction to the outflow of blood from the liver caused by thrombosis in the hepatic veins or the inferior vena cava. Bud-Chiari syndrome is associated with hypercoagulable states, for example myeloproliferative disorders. It presents with a classic triad of abdominal pain, hepatomegaly and ascites. Doppler ultrasonography is the usual imaging investigation for establishing the diagnosis of Bacchiari syndrome. Treatment options include anticoagulation, for example low molecular weight heparin and warfarin, endovascular procedures, 
for example thrombolysis or angioplasty, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt or TIPS procedure, and liver transplant. So thanks for listening to this episode on deep vein thrombosis and venous thromboembolism. As always, a big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing the podcast. And I hope you join us for the next episode where we'll go through a bonus topic of bronchiectasis before we move on to rheumatology.